0: It was one of those midsummer Sundays when everyone sits around saying, I drank too much last night. You might have heard it whispered by the parishioners leaving church, heard it from the lips of the priest himself, struggling with his cassock in the vestiarium, heard it on the golf links and the tennis courts, heard it in the wildlife preserve where the leader of the Audubon group was suffering from a terrible hangover. has been the case for the last couple of solo episodes for a little while now um this is one of those ones that i have been sitting on and thinking is this a good idea is this really a good idea i don't know maybe i shouldn't talk about that but then realizing that nobody cares and uh just just do it essentially um So I read this story, The Swimmer, by John Cheever about six months ago, and I've been trying to figure out why I relate so strongly to the main character. I love it, but it's also very disturbing. It's meant to be a disturbing story. It's a weird kind of magical realism thing where this guy wakes up one morning and decides what he's going to do that day is swim. From where he is at a neighbour's house party, all the way back to his house via all his neighbour's pools. So he's going to swim home essentially. First, there were the Grahams, the Hammers, the Lears, the Howlands, and the Cross Cups. He would cross Dipmar Street to the Bunkers and come after a short portage to the Levies, the Welchers, and the public pool in Lancaster. Then there were the Hallorans, the Sacks, the Bizzwangers the Shirley Abbots, the Gilmartins, and the Clydes. The day was lovely, and that he lived in a world so generously supplied with water seemed like a clemency, a beneficence. His heart was high, and he ran across the grass. Making his way home by an uncommon route gave him the feeling that he was a pilgrim, an explorer, a man with a destiny, and he knew that he would find friends all along the way. Friends would line the banks of the Lucinda River. It's not a long story. One of the amazing things about it is the way that Chiva manages to build this sense of dread as the guy, whose name is Nettie Merrill, does in fact swim through all these pools and comes across all these parties and meets his friends. But as the day gets longer and colder and darker, the route gets more difficult and this day that started so beautifully and so full of promise and excitement starts to change and become threatening. The seasons start to change around him. Beyond the hedge, he pulled on his trunks and fastened them. They were loose. And he wondered if during the space of an afternoon he could have lost some weight. He was cold and he was tired and the naked Hallorans in their dark water had depressed him. The swim was too much for his strength. But how could he have guessed this, sliding down the banister that morning and sitting in the Westerhazy sun? His arms were lame. His legs felt rubbery and ached at the joints. The worst of it was the cold in his bones and the feeling that he might never be warm again. Leaves were falling around him and he smelled wood smoke on the wind. Who would be burning wood in the fireplace at this time of year? So by the time Nettie gets back to his own house, it's clear that something has gone terribly wrong. Or maybe something was terribly wrong to begin with. He gets back to his house, nobody's home, everything's deserted, he's completely alone, and this task that he set himself at the start of the day seems irrelevant because there's nothing for him at the end. He had done what he wanted, He had swum the county, but he was so stupefied with exhaustion that his triumph seemed vague. Stooped, holding onto the gatepost for support, he turned up the driveway of his own house. I was disturbed by this story. I was kind of disturbed by the idea before I'd even read it. I first came across it in Olivia Lang's book, The Trip to Echo Spring, which I think I've mentioned before. It's a really excellent book. It's, uh, the subtitle is On Writers and Drinking. So it's about John Cheever, Tennessee Williams, Berryman, Fitzgerald, Raymond Carver and Hemingway and all of their fraught relationships with drinking and work. It's not as depressing as it sounds. It's exceptionally well-researched and gossipy and interesting. It helped me understand why The National have that line I think I'm like Tennessee Williams. I wait for the click. Apparently, Williams talked about the moment when his alcohol consumption was just enough that he could start working. He said he was waiting for the the click in the brain. But when Olivia Lang was writing about Cheever and when she's talking about this story, The Swimmer, I already felt like I recognized this idea this character of Nettie Merrill who sets himself this kind of pointless and weird task and has to complete it. And I didn't put this word on it at the time but since now that I've read a few other things I think the way that I would categorise this character is this is the character of the obsessive. You're, You're obsessive. You're obsessive too, it's not about the job. What helped me to see this was that recently I finally read Voss by Patrick White. Thanks to the encouragement of a friend, I would not have done it unless we had set ourselves this challenge that we were both going to read Voss. Uh, I'm so glad I've read it. It truly is incredible. I mean, you know, like hot take from Alice Allen, Nobel Prize winning Uh, novel is actually pretty good it's it's tough in parts for sure but it's well worth the effort I think and I think essentially if you haven't read it it's essentially something like the Odyssey but in the bleakest early colonial Australian setting and it's a story of Voss and Laura who become bound together early on in the story And they never really manage to extricate themselves from one another, even though they've really only had one moment of physical connection, of being in each other's space. And, you know, Cheever doesn't use the word obsessive, but Patrick White very definitely establishes who these people are by using that word to describe their behavior. And he uses it multiple times When he talks about Voss as a child, he says he was fascinated in particular by a species of lily which swallows flies, and then he says, amongst the few friends he had, his obsession became a joke. He was annoyed at first, but decided to take it in good part. To be misunderstood can be desirable. Voss, who is this German explorer who's decided to take this party of misfits on a a journey into the interior of Australia, uh takes this guy, Le Majuria, with him. Le Majuria is the poet, and I mean, look, it's not gonna surprise anyone to know that he has a particularly tough time. <laughs> but um yeah, when he's talking to Le Majuria before they leave Sydney about their purpose, Voss is kinda of thinking as he's talking to this guy, like and looking at him and thinking about how sorta of pathetic he is. And Voss thinks to himself, if I were not obsessed, I would be purposeless in the same sea. Later on, somebody who's talking to Voss about his journey says, places as yet unvisited can become an obsession, promoting final peace, or goodness. And then again, there's this squatter, who they stay with for a little while, who says to Voss, every man has his own obsession. Yours would be, it seems, to overcome distance. But in much the same way, of deeper layers of irresistible disaster. And then there's Laura, who, Penelope-like, stays at home in Sydney, thinking about Voss, wondering where he is. But before she's even met Voss, we are told that she has this same quality, her servant, Rosie, has become pregnant and Laura can't stop thinking about this and thinking about how this happened. And, and she thinks to herself, similar obsessions could not have haunted other people. I will put all such things out of my mind, she decided. Or am I a prig? So she wondered unhappily on how she might correct her nature. And then later on, if she was a prig, she was so far gone, she did not recognize it but to know is not to cure. She was beset by all kinds of dark helplessnesses that might become obsessions. Patrick White talks about both these characters being obsessed by the struggle between their two souls. I've probably already spoiled too much of the book. I don't want to... I mean, it was written in 1957, so possibly I shouldn't be worried about that, but I think it's well worth reading if you haven't read it. I don't want to say too much about where these characters end up, but let's just say that obsession isn't a positive thing in Laura's case or in Voss's. And importantly, like Chiva, Patrick White doesn't see this as any kind of heroic quality at all. It's much more like these characters have a curse. It links them together, but it drives them to fairly miserable ends. Janice was, like, weirdly jealous of him. Like, if I would blow her off to hang out with Kyle, she'd be like, why didn't you call me back? And I'd be like, why are you so obsessed with me? So, then my birthday. so poets, of course, as in the character of La Mergeria, they're not generally known for their mental stability. I mean, I've done an episode all about this before. Like, it's it's way too easy to come up with examples of the poet as nutcase. You can probably think of five to ten right now. It's hard to find counterexamples, really, if you think about it, like, historically speaking. And on the one hand, I think this is a really toxic and dangerous myth and a a shitty way to think about creativity and our relationship to creativity. On the other hand, there's just a lot of examples (laughs) of where it plays out. I've been reading this collection of essays on Gerard Manley Hopkins and I love this line from Austin Warren who says, of Hopkins, the high pitch of his temperament made all his days abound in momentous decisions and crises. (laughs) Thinking about all this too, I went back to my Keats. I feel like he also radiates this quality of the obsessive and i found this poem that i think sums up the experience pretty damn perfectly to a lady seen for a few moments at Vauxhall, time sea hath been five years at its slow ebb long hours have to and fro let creep the sand since i was tangled in thy beauty's web and snared by the ungloving of thine hand and yet i never look on midnight sky but i behold thine eyes well-memoried light I cannot look upon the roses die, but to thy cheek my soul doth take its flight. I cannot look on any budding flower, but my fond ear, in fancy at thy lips, and hearkening for a love sound, doth devour its sweet in the wrong sense. Thou dost eclipse every delight with sweet remembering, and grief unto my darling joys dost bring." Now, I don't really believe this poem. As in, I don't really believe that Keats, the person, actually had these feelings. But I do think the last two lines are just about perfect. Or the last two and a half lines. Thou dost eclipse every delight with sweet remembering, and grief unto my darling joys dost bring. This is not a good state to be in. This is not fun. There's nothing sweet about this. This is a state of mind where even when good things happen, they are soured and sullied because there's this other thing that is desired, that is needed, that feels essential, that is out of reach. I've already talked about this essay before, but someone who does a much better job than me of unpacking all this is the poet Joshua Meegan. He wrote an essay in 2011 for poetry called I Thought You Were a Poet. One of my favourite sections in the essay is where he says, by modernism, the greatest poets are like the villains in the old Batman TV show, each known for his or her own inimitable brand of eccentricity, whether it's Marianne Moore's Tricorn, Cummings' Typography, or Pound's Broadcasting Career. This is also the period when sane poets begin composing poetry reminiscent of schizophrenia like these lines from Gertrude Stein. Do I see cake? Do I do the reverse of acting? Yes, do I feel sensually deceived? Thoughts in mental suggestion, in increase of senses, in suggestion, senses deceptive, in, in deception, 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 vanilla, lemon as lemon, vanilla as the beginning of in, in suggestion, 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 suggestion of the suggestions as the beginning, of in suggestion a couple of paragraphs later Josh admits that this isn't Gertrude Stein at all and having done so a couple of times in the essay already he says I'm gonna stop lying for effect now (laughs) he's making a case about madness not obsession specifically but looking at this again it reminded me about a real Gertrude Stein poem that I suddenly could see in a totally new light Gertrude Stein is exceptionally powerful. She has the power to deeply upset people. (laughs) And this particular poem can make people very, very angry. And so I I hesitate to include it because you've put your trust in me. You've got your headphones in. You're listening to me talk. And you didn't sign up for this. Uh, I know when I played this for Tom once, he said, This is why people hate poetry which is something he said to me more than once. Just grit your teeth for a second, okay? Just just have a quick listen to this. If I told him a completed portrait of Picasso, if I told him, would he like it? Would he like it if I told him? Would he like it? Would Napoleon? Would Napoleon? Would? Would he like it? If Napoleon, if I told him, if I told him if Napoleon, would he like it if I told him? If I told him if Napoleon... Would he like it if Napoleon? If Napoleon, if I told him. This is the poem, If I Told Him, a completed portrait of Pablo Picasso. This poem is very important to me. I'm certainly not the only person in the world who's into it either. It's inspired dance, a percussion tribute, an operatic tribute, which I think might have been a mistake, and a remix. Would Napoleon, would, Napoleon, would, would he like it? It's Napoleon, if I told him, if I told him, it's Napoleon. When I was first introduced to it, I'd never seen language used this way before. I really like the idea that someone would try to create a cubist image using only words. I like its weird sense of aggression towards its subject. It's not a flattering portrait, if it's a portrait at all. But above all, I love Stein's reading. As someone who is sitting here this morning trying to record this and hesitating and going back and saying things again and doubting my delivery, listening to her, it's like she sounds so powerful. She's so completely committed to what she's doing, even though what she's doing is arguably kind of ridiculous. I think this is part of what unsettles people. But then in, in light of trying to think about this obsessive quality and, and where it lives and how it's expressed, I thought about this poem and I thought, well, that's it. That's what the obsessive exactly mind do do. sounds like. Exactly and exactly. And do they do? At first, exactly, first exactly and do they just... do? The first Exactly. And do but they do I, the first exactly, at first exactly, I, first as exactly, at first as exactly, to, presently, as presently, as as presently? That. He, 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 and 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 and he, and he, he, and he, he, and he, he, and and he, he, and 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 with Picasso? Is it Picasso's obsession with his work? I know that when we went to see the Picasso exhibit at um, the NGV, I, I came out feeling kind of ill, like there was so much work and it was so overwhelming. I mean, I often feel overwhelmed going to see big exhibitions like that, but it felt to me like damage had been done in the process of making some of those things, and there were some kind of hand-waving references to Picasso's attitude towards his, towards the women in his life, uh, yeah. It it felt like the work had been made at a high cost, but I don't know if that's what Stein was trying to do with that poem. She probably wasn't thinking about obsession at all. But thinking about it in that light, I appreciated it all over again. And there's a difference between being obsessed and being motivated. Yes, there is. One of my early meditation teachers talked about this state that you can get into early on when you start sitting. It's sort of like a state of, of temporary bliss. Essentially, it's this moment that can feel like you've already reached enlightenment. But actually what it is, is just the first instance of the noise of the mind subsiding. And the very first time you feel that, it's like when the fridge that's been buzzing finally drops to a quieter register and you sort of have this moment of like, Oh my god, I didn't even realise how much noise was there and now it's gone. It's a a feeling of huge relief. I was uh, going back and forth with Elijah on the Slea Ricketts substack recently about the poet Edgar Bowers and I found this beautiful poem of his that, again, probably isn't about this phenomenon, but I read it as describing that state. Amor Vincent Omnia, by Edgar Bowers. Love is no more. It died as the mind dies. The pure desire relinquishing the blissful form at war. The ample joy and clarity expire. Regret is vain. Then do not grieve for what you would have faced, The sudden failure of the past. The pain of its unwilling change. And the disgrace. Leave innocence and modify your nature by the grief which poses to the will indifference that no desire is permanent in sense. Take leave of me. What recompense or pity or deceit can cure, or what assumed serenity conceal the mortal loss which we repeat? The mind will change and change shall be relief. So this is all a long way of saying what I'm coming to terms with at the moment is a realization that a lot of my favorite things that I've made have been the result of letting this obsessive quality take over. I had to do this day-long training course at work yesterday, one of those things that HR sets up, and I was dreading it. I was like, I'm not, I'm just, I'm not going to be able to make it through. It's going to be so boring. I'll, I'll just, I'll have to jump out the window. Um, but it actually wasn't that bad because, yeah, the people I work with are not afraid to kind of ask hard questions and to not let the, you know, the corporate trainer guy get away with stuff. And so they were asking things like, you know, he it was on communication, right? So they're like, He's like giving these strategies about how to have difficult conversations and they would be like, well, but how do I say no to my manager when I have all these deadlines and the deadlines won't shift or how do I give feedback to these colleagues when I really need to say something that's not positive or whatever. And what I love is like when the questions get real and unanswerable, (laughs) because really the problems that exist in a workplace, in any workplace, can't be solved by more work. But that's often the answer that you end up getting. Or you get this answer, you get, it's about that balance. You know, it's just all about balance. And this is where the red mist descends for me. <laughs> because, I mean, we know balance isn't a thing. But even if we were to concede that, okay, balance at work is a reasonable goal, maybe. Outside of that environment, when it comes to making something, when it comes to wanting to create something that is meaningful and worthwhile, there's a big part of me that just hates the idea of balance and taking it slow and having a reasonable approach. Because for me, what it's like is when I get started, I don't want to stop. Writing this, I have been using a 20-minute timer, but every time it goes off, I've just thought, ah, but I could, I could just keep going, though. <laughs> I really do know, on a, a deep, deep level from difficult experience, that in most cases, in the vast majority of cases, Obsession is a kind of misery. Obsession with things that are uncontrollable, with a boss's opinion, for example, or with another person's approval. Obsession with accolades or achievement or money or status. Anything that gives that impression of satisfaction but will leave you hungrier than ever. But I have been wondering whether when it comes to writing a poem it might be okay because when i'm obsessed with any of those other things i feel terrible it's pointless and frustrating and unsatisfactory and and endless but when i'm obsessed with a poem i feel like i'm in exactly the right place doing exactly the right thing and so, my hope is that, in that one instance, obsession's okay. Karen, take me to the nearest famous city, middle where they hang the lights, where it's random and it's common versus common, la-da-la. La. Karen, take me to the nearest famous city, middle where they hang the lights, where it's random and it's common versus common. I got five hundred and twenties and I got a ton of great ideas I'm really worked up